Hi, this is Jeff Cobert, and we welcome you to this Disney at Play podcast. On this, the 50th anniversary of the Walt Disney World Resort, I would be amiss if I didn't pay homage to great attractions that have come and gone from the original Walt Disney World Park, the Magic Kingdom. I celebrate in this podcast my top 10 favorites and now forgotten attractions that I miss and include in that list a few that actually I've never had a chance to see. Are there attractions and rides that you miss from your past experiences and visits to the Magic Kingdom? Well, stay tuned to this podcast and compare your list to mine as we talk about some of the retired attractions that have faded over the years at the Magic Kingdom. Make sure you also check out Disney at Play the list is there along with a number of vintage photos and uh, it's a good place to uh, just kind of uh, subscribe so you are notified in advance of other podcasts as they come around. So be sure to check out DisneyAtPlay.com. Also at the end, we're going to talk about another podcast you ought to check out from uh, my good friend Josh uh, Joshua Richter who ha- has done a two-part interview. Well, we'll get to come, come back to that towards the end. Now, the first and the last item on this list of 10 are actually attractions I have never experienced. Uh, The rest are part of uh, my memory over the years uh, that has not completely faded at this point. So without further ado, let's talk about the Plaza Swan Boats. This is number 10. Never had a chance to ride it because actually I didn't visit until 1988 and it didn't last past 1983. It opened in 1973. It was one of these solutions for uh, really kind of helping the load of guests that would come, particularly during the summertime. Now, you may not have actually experienced the swan boats themselves, but you may have actually stood on their dock. If you remember, before they made changes to the whole uh, central hub of the park in front of the Magic Kingdom, there used to be a rose garden on the right side, and it would have a little path in it that led to a little dock area. It is actually covered um, with kind of a Victorian roof on it, and that was actually uh, the home. Some say that the attraction originally opened much closer to Main Street, but uh, uh, the home that I'm familiar with for this one boats was here um, as part of this uh, Rose Garden. It uh, was in operation from May of 1973 uh, until August of 83. And frankly, after Uh, the first couple of years, it really was more of a seasonal attraction. There were about 12 boats when the attraction opened. They were named after different Disney princesses, similar to what you see in uh, uh, the uh, storybook Land Canal boat kind of things. Um, uh, After a time, uh, the number was reduced. It, It was an unusual system of driving that had like two handles, on it to drive left and right. It was not an easy thing to drive, even though it kind of ran on a rail or ran um, between rails, so to speak. Um, 
ran on natural gas, so you weren't having fumes kind of go out around the hub area where the guests were. Probably the most unique thing was that the boat would take off and it would go around the hub, but as it passed the Crystal Palace, it veered left, headed into Adventureland, where it would go around the Swiss Family Treehouse. If you notice, there is a, a moat, uh, a water area. Um, at one point, it was filled with some, some toy boats that you could drive, um, toy jungle cruise boats. But, um, but in its original year, is that... Um, that canal system around Swiss Family Treehouse was part of the course. And then it would come back in, veer left again, and go past Liberty Square, and then as kind of a finale underneath Cinderella Castle before it returned to the dock. Um, you can't really see much about the swan boats anymore. There aren't a lot of places to go to see anything on it. However, there is one place where they pay homage to the Plaza Swan Boats. I have no photos of this. Well, no, that's not true. I have photos of this. But I swore that I would not publish those photos. Um, and, those, and, and that homage is when you check in at the Club, um, uh, Club 66 Club... <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm getting tired here. At the Club 33 um, Magic Kingdom location. That is actually part of the entry area. And you see these uh, images and, and, uh, and uh, the swan, which uh, originally was part of the swan boats. So if you have a chance, check that out at Club 33. <laughs> um, on that note, let's go to our next one, which is number nine. And this, in this case, is kind of a whole land. It is Mickey's birthday land, which was um, something I had a chance to actually see in my very first visit in 1988. Of course, that was timed with um, Mickey's uh, anniversary. And so we had a chance to, um, and that was part of the celebration was to create a Mickey's birthday land. And in this uh, birthday land, they had a number of things there. Um, and, and the image I show is actually the, the, the circus tents. And I have no problem with storybook circus. I, I think it's a very nice thing. This was an attraction that was put together like on the fly. This there's some great stories out there. We'll have to talk about any of these attractions. Any one of these attractions could make a full podcast. This thing was put together on a fly in time for Mickey's birthday. It include Mickey's house, which was then, I believe, redone and a little bit more stylized uh, later on when it became Mickey's Toontown Fair. Um, there were four circus tents, three of which remain today. Um, the, there was a yellow one, a pink one, a blue one. And again, you can see this image, uh, from, uh, on my Disney at Play Dot site and, and kind of a, a more deeper pink or magenta kind of, that's where you would actually enter. Well, actually you could, I think, go to Mickey's, um, Mickey's house and maybe go next door to the tent. I know that happened later, uh, with, um, uh, 
but um, but you would go into this first tent and there would be a big screen and you'd gather there and wait for the party. And then on it, they would show clips from Mickey Mouse shorts over the years and kind of you'd get a sense of Mickey's uh, career. And then you would move into the blue tent, which was a big theatrical stage. And there I have an image of it, uh, which includes um, a picture of Chippendale trying to help out with the birthday cake. Everything becomes a disaster, but it all comes together. It was a wonderful, fun stage show with a couple of live actors and then uh, some of the Fab Five Disney characters, or Super Seven. And then you would move to the pink tent, which served as um, a place where you could go and sing happy birthday and a big birthday cake for Mickey Mouse. And then, uh, by the way, gather some souvenirs. The yellow tent was actually where you would go in those early days. And later on with Mickey Starland, you would go there um, to go uh, see Mickey Mouse. There was kind of a um, uh, Main Street Cinema Bijou kind of entrance to that. Uh, the train station was there. And by the way, they were doing construction. Um, I believe that construction had to do with the um, the utility building that was placed next to Space uh, Space Mountain, um, and and so during that time they actually ran the train from Main Street to Toontown and back again. It was either that or they ran it from Main Street to Toontown and back. They ran it only a portion and then they ran it backwards, which I don't know why they haven't done that during the Tron construction, but but the but the train station was and is really the well, actually, three of the tents have one of the tents has since gone away, the darker magenta. The other three tents are still very much there. They're they're covered with a different um, texture, but they all serve as a meet and greet and and um, as a, as a um, as a show building. Actually, I guess there's only two buildings that remain. I have to think about that. Yeah, I guess it's only two buildings that remain now. Um, and then there's a portion of the building that they built, kind of a yellow tent um, that's part of Storybook Circus. There was also a little playground. There was um, uh, a little uh, petting farm, which included a tricycle spotted cow named Minnie Moo. Um, there was a little maze there, little elements that kind of, it was all redone later on. What well, was when the birthday ended, it became Mickey Starland in 1990, and then it became Toontown Fair in 1996. I was there the day that opened. Um, and uh, at any rate, that I loved, the thing I really loved about this and why it got on the list is I really liked um, the show. And I felt like the stage show is something we're kind of missing. Uh, there's not enough stage shows at the Magic Kingdom and there's no, every Magic Kingdom style park around the world has a major theater. And yet the Magic Kingdom does not. And I tell you with heat and humidity, they so badly need it. This was something like unto that, although a much smaller venue than what you see elsewhere. But anyway, that is our number nine choice is Mickey's Birthday Land. Number eight, I've kind of combined two attractions. Okay, that might make it more than 10, but work with me. It's my list. So 
It is Mike Fink's Keelboat and Davy Crockett's Explorer Canoes. What I loved about the old days of the Rivers of America is with the, with the ship and with the Tom Sawyer rafts and with the Keelboat and the Explorer Canoes, something was always happening out in their water. It was very, very much um, uh, a sense of movement and, and motion there. Uh, both the Mike Fink Keelboats and the Davy Crockett Explorer Canoes were pass-alongs from Disneyland. They existed also at Disneyland. Both uh, connected themselves to the Davy Crockett film. Um, they, um, uh, the, the Mike Fink Killboats, there were two of them and they had the same name as the Disneyland counterparts. Uh, it was a kind of seasonal attraction as well. Again, back then in those days, a lot of people were driving down during the summer months and summer was really a busy book time. Um, the canoes uh, started on opening day at Walt Disney World, took a sea ticket to uh, board that. And uh, they were uh, located at a dock just on the north of the Tom Sawyer Island raft launch. By the way, the Mike Fink Killboats were originally launched in Liberty Square, right next to Haunted Mansion. That little building on the left as you head into the Haunted Mansion was really the, sh the, uh, the boarding space for the Keelboats. They then moved it over to Frontierland and have since used that space for kind of an overflow for the Haunted Mansion. Uh, but it moved over to um, just pat, just approximate to Big Thunder Mountain. And after it went away, it just kind of became a smoking area. You can now just sit on that dock and it's covered and it's it's a great way to um, um, to just sit back and and uh, rock on some rocking chairs. So these were these were elements that really created the the feel and the the passion of what was. Frontierland and and the rivers of America at the time, the keelboats uh, out the one one of the keelboats at Disneyland ended up with a really bad um, situation where the boat overturned. You you sat in the keelboats inside these openings, so the windows kind of um, you allowed you to look out, but then you also sat up on the top. And if you didn't board the thing right, it would rock back and forth and it had the potential of capsizing. Not a good thing uh, you want to have with your guests. And nobody wore a vest on it. So it, it, it was kind of a funky thing at the time. The canoes, the canoes actually exist today not as an attraction for um, at, at uh, Walt Disney World, but they do have what's known as crow or... It's an acronym, which is Canoe Races of the World. And they invite the cast members annually to come and they do these canoe races. And it was one of the great experiences of my experience at Walt Disney World. And so I hold a lot of fond memories of the canoe races there. Um, but as an attraction in the park, it has since, uh, since gone its own way. So that's number eight, the combination of those two. Number seven is Snow White's Scary Adventures. And I have to say, um, this, I love S Snow White's Adventures. I think I commented, if you haven't heard last week's podcast, it was one of the highlights of my experience at Disneyland Paris. 
And if you go back to my Disneyland podcast back in the fall, uh, the new um, Snow White's Enchanted Wish at Disneyland is truly amazing. The one in Tokyo is beautifully done. It's a, it's a mirror of the one that used to be at the Magic Kingdom, but done perfectly. I'm saying this because the, the reason it's not further up the list, I love Dark Rides, but it was never, in my view, as well kept as um, other attraction, uh, other uh, comparable attractions in other parks. I always felt like it was in a stage of neglect. Uh, I didn't feel like the black light worked as well as it has in other places. So for that reason, it's it's on the list at number five. But notwithstanding, it it was a very scary attraction because you were in you were taking on the role of Snow White, so you wouldn't see Snow White. You would just ride on the ride and you keep running into the witch and occasionally the dwarf. But largely, it was kind of um, an intimidating ride. So they redid that attraction. And I want to say that was uh, back in 94, they did that uh, redo. And there they added um, an equivalent number of Snow Whites uh, throughout the attraction which made it uh, a much friendlier experience. Uh, any rate, um, Snow White's uh, Scary Adventures, part of Fantasyland. It is now, of course, Princess Fairytale Hall, which is nicely done, but that is space for a dark ride. I'm disappointed that there isn't another dark ride in that space. Would something on Rapunzel be of interest? there something like that disappointing that is no longer there uh, i do love by the way the seven dwarfs mine ride i don't like the mine ride vehicles compared to the guardian of the galaxy vehicles these those are really tight and they kind of hurt but i love the ride it's just that it's not a very long ride and the parts that i really love are the where we see the dwarfs and the diamond mind and I don't need a roller coaster for this. I need to experience Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. But it is a great ride. It's just not the best ride. And it isn't quite the replacement, I think, that you get out of um, Snow White Scary Adventures. But that is number seven. Number six, Delta Dream Flight. You may not even remember this attraction. It is in the space, it was, it stood at a time, it was actually Delta Dream Flight because it was sponsored by Delta Airlines. Previous, there was another one sponsored by Eastern Airlines, If You Had Wings, which had a great song. I didn't add it in here. I did see If You Had Wings uh, before it, um, as I recall, I, I was able to see it before it, because uh, Delta Dreamfly didn't open until 89 and I came in 88 and was actually able to see if you had wings. I just thought it was a fairly dark attraction. It was a little sparse in my view. I think um, the projection kinds of elements that you see in an attraction um, like um, Rio del Tiempo or um, uh, the Three Caballeros attraction uh, in Mexico at Epcot, it does it a whole lot better than what if you had wings. But what I loved about Delta Dreamflight, it had some projection things that I never thought were that great. 
but they had some really wonderful dioramas and sets. Um, your job, your, you would go, first of all, they kind of celebrated the, and by the way, if you still don't know where this is, this is where, uh, where Buzz Lightyear's um, Astro Blaster Spin is today. Um, so I should have said that at the outset. But the f first big scene was this celebration in comic form, um, comic style form of barnstorming and what it was like to, uh, for these planes to kind of drive around. And there were chickens coming out of the out of the barn. Those chickens actually are still in Buzz Lightyear, if you know where to look for. They're a little more alien chicken-like, but they are an homage to this attraction. Um, then you came, and there again, there are many elements to this. The thing I really enjoyed is um, that they announced that you'd be making brief stops to Tokyo, Japan, and Paris, France. Um, and you emerge onto a dock in San Francisco Bay into what is the fuselage of a Boeing 314 flying boat. And you see these elegant uh, little tables. There is no way these tables could stand um, regulation today and flying. Back then, it didn't even look like you had a seatbelt on the thing. But they had this beautiful layout for first-class dining. It just harkens back to another era. And then you would end up in Tokyo, um, and you would see this little scene there. And then you'd end up on the rooftops and skyline of Paris, France, and see the quaint little shops below. I just thought this whole scenario here was so well done and so thematic and so um, so impressive. So I just had to add that in. I think it is worthy. Um, uh, I, it, it would be fun to see. Number five, Mr. Toad's Wild Ride. Mr. Toad's Wild Ride never at the Magic Kingdom, in my view, was as good as the remodel of Mr. Toad's Wild Ride um, in the new Fantasyland at Disneyland. Still, it was a lot of fun. And what made Mr. Toad's Wild Ride all the better at Walt Disney World is they had not one, but two tracks where you would be able to see where you well, actually you would board and it looked originally like your car was going to go into each other and then they would um a swerve and that you would go into a separate set of scenes on both sides and then you would meet up again and it looked like you were coming you you were kind of running into each other then it would go back into a couple of different scenes there were a lot of different scenes in that attraction um that i remember some of them um, let me just name a few. Maybe you'll remember those. A Toad Hall, of course, the library, uh, the barnyard and barn. Uh, there was a one-way street. Don't go this way, you know, and I think that's where the cop was saying, don't go that way. Town Square. Uh, there was a jail, a prison, um, a train tunnel, a trophy room, a gypsy camp. The gypsy camp is one of the things I remember the most. A keg room, uh, um, a, um, and then of course, ultimately you came onto these train tracks and you were like going down these train tracks and then you crashed with the train and then you ultimately ended up in hell, which was the weirdest part about that ride. Um, it's still, 
Uh, it had a roly crump feel to it. If um, again, this is worthy of of its own podcast, but but the original Tony Baxter talks about how the original painting on this did not work. It had not really been done in true blacklight, and so they actually had to redo the attraction to create the more blacklight kind of essence of it. And uh, and you notice that in the picture I posted in the podcast that that it it, it doesn't look like blacklight, um, which was common of those um uh those dark attractions like snow white scary adventures and peter pan's flight so any rate uh of course the ending of that story is that disney made a choice that gee after mickey or even perhaps better than mickey winnie the pooh plush does really well why aren't we selling uh winnie the pooh plush and having a winnie the pooh attraction that's how uh, the Magic Kingdom came to have the first Winnie the Pooh attraction. There are better ones out there. In fact, pretty much all of them are better out there. Although the one in Shanghai is almost a model of that. Again, that's another conversation for another day. But it became, of course, the end of Mr. Toad. Okay, that is number five, is Mr. Toad's Wild Ride. Now, I have to go to number four. And you'll probably think, why wasn't this number one or at least number two? You may be a little disappointed, especially when you see the ones I have for three and two, which are very different. I put as number four, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. This attraction, which stood in Fantasyland for whatever reason you can never imagine because it had nothing to do with fantasy land it became its own land in and of itself and i wish they would create a land based on it i love the rock work i love the falls i love the clear blue water and most of all i love those subs coming through that area it was visually powerful and uh, and a great photo you could take from the skyway which i didn't include on this list but um so why is it at number four not higher? Well, the truth of the matter is, is the submarine ride was never a submarine. It was a boat where you look out at portals down below. Sorry to disappoint you. And the attraction itself was just, it could be so much better if it were done like the Disneyland submarine voyage today, which features Nemo. Imagine that attraction being done with screen elements, very similar to what you what you had, um, what you have today with with uh, uh, with the Disneyland Finding Nemo submarine, um, there were again a couple of good things about it. It was narrated. The it, I loved the narration of it because it sounded like Captain Nemo, and that was done by voice actor. Pete Renaday, if you're not familiar with Pete, he's throughout the parks. Hold on to your hats and glasses. This here is the wildest ride in the wilderness. That's Pete Renaday. And it's also, howdy folks, welcome to the Country Bear Jamboree. He is Henry in um, that show. And so he, uh, he does the impression of James Mason and doing Captain Nemo's voice. I love that effect. Um, I love the sea serpent, love the mermaids. I love the Atlantis ruins and everything. There's lots of good things, but it really, um, and honestly, it was a painful attraction to board and disembark. Therefore, lines were not only long, 
they moved so slow. And what seemed like the most promising adventure while you're standing there waiting forever, you're so excited, always became disappointing when you saw fish on being hung up on string. So I have to put it number four. It, of course, eventually went away. And now we have, um, well, actually, it's the part of uh, Seven Dwarfs Mine Train and then also the Little Mermaid attraction behind it took up pretty much the footprint of the onstage and backstage portion of that ride. It is, it is something I would love to see revisited in the parks. I'm not sure when and where that will happen. Now, you'll be absolutely surprised by my next two, I believe. The next one coming at nine, number three is the Timekeeper. And a lot of you may not even know what the Timekeeper is. But in the 1994 Tomorrowland um, uh, redo, which has now since been redone, they put in an attraction called uh, the Timekeeper, which was also known in English as From Time to Time when it first... Uh, arrived at Disneyland Paris. It was actually built for the Disneyland Paris uh, park because at that time, um, their commitment to the French was we would have attractions based on um, Europe. And this allowed you to introduce a couple of key people such as H.G. Wells and Jules Verne. But for us, it also introduced the remarkable uh, Robin Williams, who served as the voice of the robot or the timekeeper. And it was truly, um, uh, he was truly funny, 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 because he also works off of Nine Eye, a robot with nine eyes, who was voiced by Cheers, Rhea Perlman. And the two of them back and forth bantering, that made it, all the best, all the great. And then the whole story and the visuals, Jules Verne on the front of a bullet train going down at 160 miles an hour or soaring in the future through the Eiffel Tower. It was a great attraction. It gave way to Monsters Incorporated Laugh Floor and that is a loss. While that there is some good to be found in the time in Monsters Incorporated Laugh Floor, it is not a Tomorrowland attraction, and this was, and it was great, and it was unfortunate because this this attraction, which was essentially a Circle Vision film, never really caught on. And uh, and by the way, something I didn't know, they were actually going to, uh, with the budget, take the Plaza Pavilion restaurant right next to it you know, where the purple wall is that people, they were going to take that whole area and they were going to make it what was going to be called the Astronomers Club. And it would kind of build out a, a steampunk kind of thing that would feature uh, performances of Leonardo da Vinci, Isaac Newton, Galileo, and so forth. And uh, and they would kind of come in to and fro. any rate, that never happened, as you well know. So um, that is what became of that attraction. And by the way, if you ever go to my website for my business, Performance Journeys, and you look for my logo, 
you'll actually see it is based on the logo for the timekeeper, which is one part compass and one part, one half um, clock. So I have a lot of uh, love and good feelings about the timekeeper. Probably could have put that in number two. And you're gonna be surprised for number two because that attraction ended up being um, extra, ex <laughs> let me say it over again, extraterrestrial alien encounter, which was the freakiest and scariest ride attraction ever built. It went in the space long before Stitch's escape went in there. Um, it used to be previous to Alien Encounter, Mission to Mars, and previous to that, Flight to the Moon. So this Alien Encounter attraction, it's hard to explain, but basically you go into a room. Well, first of all, you're prefaced by an intro, well, by a narrator who welcomes you in the lobby. And a lot of people do not know that that voice is that greets the guests at the beginning is actually Tyra Banks. And then you go into a presentation um, done by an audio animatronic robot called Sir. And uh, it's voiced by Tim Curry. And then you're led into one of two chambers. And these were chambers where a you sat in a circle around this large tube or cylinder you had this thing come over your shoulders, which created for binaural sound. And you were promised for an example of how uh, the new technology allows you to move something from one location, teleportation. It's a teleportation demonstration that goes really wrong. And Chairman Clench, played by Jeffrey Jones, um, instructs, the um the workers there who are in charge which um was uh, kathy najimi very funny person and kevin pollock spinlock who played spinlock they are in charge of running this thing and they get all frost anxious and excited and it it originally was not scary enough michael eisner had it redone to make it much scarier and then they brought it back down to much funnier and the much funnier one is the one I remember. I think I saw the scariest one, but I have little recall of it. Um, the alien was pretty freaky, um, especially when the alien breaks out of the tube. This was an intense theatrical show, but the reason I put it at number two, partly because um, it was well done. The audio animatronics was well done. The writing for this was well done. The, 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 the juxtaposition of fear and funny with characters like Kathy and Najimi just was a perfect match. And I found it to be in terribly entertaining. The other thing that I just makes it at the top of the list is because there's nothing there now. There could be other things there and I'd be probably okay with that, but it needs something in my opinion. I think it ought to come back. So I have taken the moment to put it into the number two space. You probably would disagree on that, but I, uh, 
Before I go to number one, by the way, there were other things that I didn't have a chance to mention. The Pirate Arcade that used to be at Pirates of the Caribbean, the old Main Street Cinema. Um, vehicles that I don't see running on Main Street very much anymore. <clears throat> and a train that is hasn't ran for five years now. Those uh, things. But, but also uh, the Walt Disney story on Main Street would have been a good one to mention. I mentioned earlier the Skyway. These are all um, things that have come and gone. Um, but uh, on my number one list, and if you listen to my podcast faithfully, you are not going to be surprised by what's number one because number one is the Mickey Mouse Review. And I have a couple of photos on this. One is a wide angle lens that was done on this attraction, which gives you a sense of the width. Now this takes place inside what is Mickey's Filler Magic now, which having been redone and digitized and added to the Coco scene is really good. But this show was a massive audio animatronic undertaking. Yes, pulling off all of the presidents for the Hall of Presidents was a big deal but so was all of these disney characters just the orchestra mickey mouse is conductor minnie mouse violin daisy is cello pluto hi-hat cymbal goofy string bass it goes on huey dewey and louie are doing trumpets ludwig von drake ukulele mad hatter march hare dormouse winnie the pooh rabbit piglet did you even know who monty or abner is that's the city mouse and the county mouse you have to go back to a silly's a symphonies piece. Gus and Jock from Cinderella, Dumbo, Timothy, Ka, and King Louie and Baloo for all from Jungle Book. All of these are added in. This is just the orchestra for this show and they're all animatronic. And then you go into these scenes that involve um, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Uh, singing hi-ho, whistle while you work, when you wish upon a star. You then go to the three little pigs uh, with who's afraid of the big bad wolf. Uh, Snow White comes back with I'm wishing. And this, uh, well, actually her scene is I'm wishing. And then the seven dwarves sing the silly song with Snow White. The overture had hi-ho and whistle while you work and wish upon a star. Then you go to Alice in Wonderland and singing flowers all in a golden afternoon. Those would eventually go back to Disneyland in the dark attraction there. Then you had the three caballeros, Donald Duck, Jose Carioca, and Panchito Pistoles. This is how you get um, the three caballeros grand um, um, attraction over at Mexico. Those animatronics are original animatronics from the Mickey Mouse Review. In fact, they actually show up three times over during the show, kind of interrupting the flow of the show by bumping in and singing. Uh, Bippity Boppity Boo is sung by Fairy Godmother. Uh, Cinderella sings, So This Is Love. Um, after she is transformed into a princess, Zip right before you. Then we end with uh, Br'er Bear, Br'er Fox, and Br'er Rabbit, and where everybody sings Zippity Doodah, ending with the Mickey Mouse alma mater. This is a this is a massive. This is one of the most massive animatronic shows ever created, and uh, I wanted to see it from day one, and they took it out. 
when they built Tokyo Disney, they were behind the eight ball and trying to get that attraction open, that not attraction, that entire park, um, at a time where they were also building Epcot. So they just dismantled the whole thing, um, played, uh, what was the film? Um, I'm singing the song, uh, Magic Journeys, um, for a little while. And then they actually did a Lion King puppet show which was actually really good. That should have almost been on my list um, before they actually ended up doing what is Mickey's Filler Magic now. Eventually, Mickey's Filler Magic also went to Tokyo Disney and they did away with all the animatronics there at Tokyo Disney. any rate, that is my top 10 attractions that, man, I wish we could see them again at the Magic Kingdom. Wonder what your list looked like and wonder if there's something I missed or if you might have put it into a different order. Um, but oh, thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this podcast, can I also suggest that you check out a Four Parks podcast? My friend Joshua Richter recently did a, a podcast that actually ended up being a two-part interview about my, my life, my history, my association with Disney and what I do today. So if you're not familiar, if you're not, uh, if you don't know a whole lot about my background past, um, Josh uh, interviews me in that and that, and the link is at disneyplay.com, um, but you can um, go do a search for Four Parks Podcast and find it there. So check that podcast out when you have a chance. And when you have a chance, also check out our Patreon group, the Wayfinder Society, for as little as a dollar a month. This Patreon group not only helps to support this podcast, but man, it gives you access to one of our Disney at Play Interactive Guides. For a greater contribution, you get access to a number of them that are very cool. So definitely check out the Patreon group. Well, that does it for this Disney at Play podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. And in the words, a Sinbad storybook voyage, always follow the compass of your heart. Have a great day. We'll see you real soon. Thank you.